Chapter Two, Part One of *The Many-Sided Franklin* by Paul Lester Ford. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Michelle Fry, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Chapter Two: Physique, Theories, and Appetites, Part One. In his autobiography, Franklin relates that his father had an excellent constitution of body, was of middle stature, but well set and very strong qualities all inherited by the son from the maternal side the boy derived likewise an excellent constitution and he asserts that i never knew either my father or mother to have any sickness but that of which they died he at eighty-nine and she at eighty-five years of age this heritage of soundness and strength was a large element in the success franklin achieved he himself took pride that in the printing office where he worked during his first london sojourn on occasion i carried up and down stairs a large form of types in each hand when others carried but one in both hands after he set up as a printer for himself he often worked till far into the night a diligence which led a philadelphian to remark that quote, the industry of that franklin is superior to anything i ever saw of the kind i see him still at work when i go home from my club and he is at work again before his neighbors are out of bed End quote even after the necessity for severe labor was over in his scheme of employment for the twenty-four hours of a natural day he allotted for sleep only six hours or those between ten and four if his constitutional and muscular vigor enabled him thus to tax his body it did not save him from the illnesses his parents had escaped in seventeen twenty seven so he states when i was just past my twenty-first year i was taken ill my distemper was a pleurisy which very nearly carried me off i suffered a great deal gave up the point in my mind and was rather disappointed when i found myself recovering regretting in some degree that i must now some time or other have all that disagreeable work to do over in seventeen thirty five he had a second attack of this complaint and so serious a character that the left lung superated prior to these two seizures too he thought he had avoided an illness only by quote, having read somewhere that cold water drank plentifully was good for a fever and when in the evening i found myself very feverish i followed the prescription sweat plentifully most of the night and the next morning was well again End quote. this is the more interesting since for many years afterward the usual treatment for fevers involved the entire denial of water to the sufferer in another way franklin differed from his own generation in not dreading water not merely did he approve of water internally but externally as well swimming he maintained was one of the most healthful and agreeable exercises in the world and if one did not know how to swim a warm bath by cleansing and purifying the skin is found very salutary i speak from my own experience frequently repeated and that of others to whom i have recommended this in the year seventeen seventy eight when suffering from a cutaneous trouble he says I took a hot bath twice a week, two hours at a time, with the utmost benefit. And a subsequent neglect, when he hardly bathed in those three months, served to bring on a second attack. In the last years of his life, 
when suffering from a complication of maladies cutler relates that he used a warm bath every day in a bathing vessel said to be a curiosity it is copper in the form of a slipper he sits in the heel and the legs go under the vamp on the instep he has a place to fix his book and here he sits and enjoys himself about the time i left the city of philadelphia they chose him president of the executive council his accepting the office is a sure sign of senility but would it not be a capital subject for an historical painting the doctor placed at the head of the council board in his bathing slipper as franklin was in advance of his times in the use of water so too he led the way in preaching the value of fresh air in a letter to his friend dr duborg he said quote, i greatly approve the epithet which you give in your letter of the eighth of june to the new method of treating the smallpox which you call a tonic or bracing method i will take occasion from it to mention a practice to which i have accustomed myself you know the cold bath has long been in vogue here as a tonic but the shock of the cold water has always appeared to me generally speaking as too violent and i have found it much more agreeable to my constitution to bathe in another element i mean cold air with this view i rise almost every morning and sit in my chamber without any clothes whatever half an hour or an hour according to the season either reading or writing this practice is not in the least painful but on the contrary agreeable and if i return to bed afterwards before i dress myself as sometimes happens i make a supplement of my night's rest of one or two hours of the most pleasing sleep that can be imagined i find no ill consequences whatever resulting from it and that at least it does not injure my health if it does not in fact contribute much to its preservation i shall therefore call it for the future a bracing or a tonic bath this theory he is to be found advocating constantly another means of preserving health to be attended to is the having a constant supply of fresh air in your bedchamber he averred it has been a great mistake the sleeping in rooms exactly closed and in beds surrounded by curtains no outward air that may come into you is so unwholesome as the unchanged air so often breathed of a closed chamber elsewhere he wrote Physicians, after having for ages contended that the sick should not be indulged with fresh air, have at length discovered that it may do them good. It is therefore to be hoped that they may in time discover likewise that it is not harmful to those who are in health, and that we may then be cured of the aerophobia that at present distresses weak minds and makes them choose to be stifled and poisoned rather than leave open the window of a bedchamber or put down the glass of a coach a most amusing glimpse of his proselytizing is given in john adams's autobiography during a journey in seventeen seventy six quote, at brunswick but one bed could be procured for dr franklin and me and a chamber little larger than the bed without a chimney and with only one small window the window was open and i who was an invalid and afraid of the air of night shut it close oh says franklin don't shut the window we shall be suffocated i answered i was afraid of the evening air dr franklin replied the air within this chamber will soon be and indeed is now worse than that without doors 
Come, open the window, and come to bed, and I will convince you. I believe you are not acquainted with my theory of coals. Opening the window and leaping into the bed, I said I had read his letters to Dr. Cooper, in which he had advanced that nobody ever got cold by going into a cold church or any other cold air, but the theory was so little consistent with my experience that I thought it a paradox. However, I had so much curiosity to hear his reasons that I would run the risk of a cold. The doctor then began to harangue upon air and cold and respiration and perspiration, with which I was so much amused that I soon fell asleep and left him and his philosophy together, but I believe they were equally sound and insensible within a few minutes after me, for the last words I heard were pronounced as if he were more than half asleep. I remember little of the lecture, except that the human body, by respiration and perspiration, destroys a gallon of air in a minute, that two such persons as were now in that chamber would consume all the air in it in an hour or two, that by breathing over again the matter thrown off by the lungs and the skin, we should imbibe the real cause of colds, not from abroad, but from within. End quote. Even Franklin, however, could have a surfeit of air, and he described an experience on the frontier which his liking for fresh air brought upon him. As to our lodging, he related, it is on deal feather beds, in warm blankets, and much more comfortable than when we lodged at our inn the first night after we left home. For the woman being about to put very damp sheets on the bed, we desired her to air them first. Half an hour afterwards she told us the bed was ready, and the sheets well aired. I got into bed, but jumped out immediately, finding them as cold as death, and partly frozen she had aired them indeed but it was out upon the hedge i was forced to wrap myself up in my great coat and woolen trousers he that lives carnally won't live eternally poor richard assured his readers and he reinforced this with the couplet against diseases here the strongest fence is the defensive virtue abstinence Elsewhere, he makes his opinion more specific by declaring that a full belly is the mother of all evil, and advises that to lengthen thy life, lessen thy meals, for three good meals a day is bad living. This caution the proverb-maker himself seems to have regarded early in life. At sixteen years of age, he says, I happened to meet with a book written by one Tryon, recommending a vegetable diet. I determined to go into it. My brother, being yet unmarried, did not keep house, but boarded himself and his apprentices in another family. My refusing to eat flesh occasioned an inconveniency, and I was frequently chid for my singularity. I made myself acquainted with Tryon's manner of preparing some of his dishes, such as boiling potatoes or rice, making hasty pudding, and a few others, and then proposed to my brother that if he would give me weekly half the money he paid for my board, I would board myself. He instantly agreed to it, and I presently found that I could save half what he paid me. Such was Franklin's enthusiasm for the theory that he became not merely a disciple, but a propagandist of Tryon, and in entering Samuel Keimer's employment as a journeyman printer, he so worked upon his employer, who was a great glutton, that he agreed to try the practice if I would keep him company. 
i did so and we held it for three months we had our victuals dressed and brought to us regularly by a woman in the neighborhood who had from me a list of forty dishes to be prepared for us at different times in all of which there was neither fish flesh nor fowl and the whim suited me the better at this time from the cheapness of it not costing us above eighteen pence sterling each per week i have since kept several lengths most strictly leaving the common diet for that and that for the common abruptly without the least inconvenience so that i think there is little in the advice of making those changes by easy gradations i went on pleasantly but poor keimer suffered grievously tired of the project longed for the flesh-pots of egypt and ordered a roast pig he invited me and two women friends to dine with him but it being brought too soon upon the table he could not resist the temptation and ate the whole before we came undoubtedly as all this indicated economy was quite as strong a motive with franklin as abstemiousness for he tells of his taking lodgings in london where our supper was only half an anchovy each on a very little strip of bread and butter and half a pint of ale between us because of its greater economy but though motives of thrift induced him to sup thus frugally he seems to have had as well a special prejudice against the late suppers that the fashion of early dining then made customary dine with little sup with less do better still sleep supperless he recommends for eat few suppers and you'll need few medicines in the same vein he told a correspondent in general mankind since the improvement of cookery eat about twice as much as nature requires suppers are not bad if we have not dined but restless nights naturally follow hearty suppers after full dinners indeed as there is a difference in constitutions some rest well after these meals it costs them only a frightful dream and an apoplexy after which they sleep till doomsday nothing is more common in the newspapers than instances of people who after eating a hearty supper are found dead abed in the morning he even carried his theory so far as to approve of a physician who prescribes abstinence for the cure of consumption he must be clever because he thinks as we do i saw few die of hunger poor richard affirmed of eating one hundred thousand this moderation taught by maxim and example was due to discretion rather than to desire and though poor richard insisted that all should eat to live and not live to eat his double as time wore on failed to live up to his own good advice and such temperance as he exercised was due to motives of economy rather than to control of appetite the poor man he said must walk to get meat for his stomach the rich man to get a stomach for his meat and when opportunity or prosperity enabled him to gratify his appetite he had occasion often to reprove himself for his want of self-control as a trencherman his father trained him he states so that little or no notice was ever taken of what related to the victuals on the table whether it was well or ill-dressed in or out of season of good or bad flavor preferable or inferior to this or that thing of the kind so that i was brought up in such a perfect inattention to those matters as to be quite indifferent to what kind of food was set before me and so unobservant of it that to this day if i am asked i can scarcely tell in a few hours after dinner what i dined upon none the less franklin had a very positive relish for his food 
he tells an amusing story of how he came first to abandon vegetarianism when on a voyage from boston being becalmed off block island our people set about catching cod and hauled up a good many which franklin deemed a kind of unprovoked murder Quote, but i had formerly been a great lover of fish and when this came hot out of the frying-pan it smelt admirably well i balanced some time between principles and inclination till i recollected that when the fish were opened i saw smaller fish taken out of their stomachs then thought i if you eat one another i don't see why we mayn't eat you so i dined upon cod very heartily and continued to eat with other people returning only now and then occasionally to a vegetable diet so convenient a thing it is to be a reasonable creature since it enables one to find or make a reason for everything one has a mind to do End quote. this anecdote is not the only evidence that franklin thoroughly enjoyed the palatable things of life in a voyage across the atlantic in seventeen twenty six he states that the pilot brought on board about a peck of apples with him that seemed the most delicious i ever tasted in my life the salt provisions we had been used to gave them a relish on the frontier thirty years later he thanked his wife for a supply of provisions telling her Quote, we have enjoyed your roast beef and this day began on the roast veal i agree that they are both the best that ever were of the kind your citizens that have their dinner hot and hot know nothing of good eating we find in it much greater perfection when the kitchen is fourscore miles from the dining-room the apples are extremely welcome and do bravely to eat after our salt pork the minced pies are not yet come to hand again when in england he apparently craved certain american dishes for his wife wrote him quote, i have sent to you two barrels of apples which i hope will prove good i could not get some indy meal and buckwheat flour but i shall by the next opportunity End quote. such shipments were evidently a yearly practice for a twelve month before this franklin had written to his wife quote, the buckwheat and indian meal are come safe and good they will be a great refreshment to me this winter for since i cannot be in america everything that comes from thence comforts me a little as being something like home the dried peaches are excellent those dried without their skins the parcel in their skins are not so good the apples are the best i ever had and came with the least damage the sturgeon you mentioned did not come but that is not so material End quote perhaps the frankest indication of franklin's personal likings is afforded in his acknowledgment that many people are fond of accounts of old buildings and monuments but for one i confess that if i could find in any italian travels a receipt for making parmesan cheese it would give me more satisfaction than a transcript of any inscription from any old stone whatever End of chapter two part one